Please note, every episode is someone's individual experience. One data point is not representative of everyone's time in the Air Force. Do your due diligence. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or its components. Welcome back to another episode of the AFSC series, a part of the For the Zoomies podcast, and I'm your host, Andrew Cormier. Today's guest is a 2014 Air Force Academy graduate who went on to become an intel officer. Before his time at the Academy, he was prior enlisted and worked as a maintainer working in munition systems before entering the prep school in 2009. Throughout his career, he has supported ground, air, and space operations through his intelligence collection, and most recently as a reservist, is a cyber threat intelligence project manager. He also works for Huntington National Bank as a scrum manager, where he helps employ agile management in civilian cyberspace. Ladies and gentlemen, Captain Pete Smith. Excellent. Thanks, Corm. I appreciate you uh, extending the invite, and I'm really glad to be here. Um, and I'm glad just, to finally I, have you on. You reached out probably <laughs> six six to eight months ago, and yeah. you know, life is busy at the academy. So I appreciate your patience. But um, here we are today. Hey, listen, man. I just want to say thank you for um, for doing this. I think it's awesome. Mm -hmm. I think uh, our long blue line definitely needs somebody like you to tie us all together. So, um, you know, from the alum side, we appreciate what you're doing. Well, thank you. I'm trying my best. <laughs> So um, do you think you could take us into what brought you to the academy? You, I mentioned you were prior enlisted as a maintainer. Yeah. What, what led you to the academy? All right. Yeah. So the journey for me starts with family, as any good story starts. Um, my brother was in the Air Force Academy when I was looking, uh, when I was a junior, senior in high school. And... Uh, you know, long story short, I was not competitive enough to get into the Air Force Academy. Um, mm. But coming from northern New Jersey, um, a community that was heavily impacted by um, attacks on the World Trade Center on 9-11, um, you know, that sense of service and patriotism um, was, ran deep in our family. So we were looking for ways that I could serve. And... Uh, Wanted to join the military regardless. Um, so coming out of high school, wanted to enlist, right? Um, and ended up uh, picking munition systems. Uh, I thought it sounded cool. Um, my my recruiter said, uh, hey, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to be security forces like my, my family. We're all, we're all cops. And she says, no, nah, no, you don't. Uh, <laughs> let, me, let me see what else we can get you. Uh, she says, you know, I was security forces... Uh, you know, I can tell you right now, it's not something that you'd be interested in. Um, so she vectured me to another option, which was uh, being an imagery analyst, which is, part, uh, you know, a, a type of intelligence professional in the enlisted ranks. Mm -hmm. And I said, I don't want to look at pictures all day. I don't, I don't know if that's right for me. So I said, what's this thing, munition systems? You're working with bombs all day. I'll do that. She says, all right, you can do that. No problem. We'll get you in. Uh, so yeah, I, I uh, went off to, to basic training at Lackland and had some fun there and did a couple of years enlisted. Uh, first assignment was in Misawa Air Base, Japan, um, working with F-16s and had a brief stint over in South Korea. Uh, helped to uh, stand up a, a bomb, what we call the bomb dump uh, uh, munitions area out there. 
and then got picked up for the Air Force Academy Prep School. Um, and that began my journey at, at USAFA. That actually sounds pretty similar. My, my good buddy, Joe Cheddar, he was a, a munitions guy. He builds bombs, and now he's a CE, but it uh, sounds like a, a pretty similar path. He was uh, over at Whiteman. I, I didn't get in my first time either, so um, I always try to give credit to people that um, apply multiple times because it's that persistence that I think shows admissions that you really want it. Yeah, it was a it was a unique situation. Um, it's it's a different vector to take because um, you're you're not looking for that congressional nomination or appointment. You're working through your your local commander to write you a letter of recommendation, uh, mm-hmm. and you're competing with a number of billets in your matchcom. Um, oh, I didn't even luckily, know that. Luckily, luckily for me, uh, there were the amount of positions that got actually get filled. Um, I don't think they fill all of them every year. Uh, so I wasn't, it wasn't too competitive for me at least that year. Mm. So well, that's uh, good. I mean, you know, I'd, I'd say luck was on my side. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, while we were talking before um, getting this episode prepared, you mentioned um, something about a story of integrity having to do with the commandant while you were here as a cadet. Do you mind uh, sharing oh, wow. that story? Yeah. We're jumping right in. <laughs> I yeah, just we're figured o- since we're, we're on the topic the kimono. of being a cadet. Yeah. Okay, so, um, yeah, you know, look, as a cadet, it's, um, you know, we all know how how important the, um, you know, the honor system is. So much of our curriculum is based on that um, mm. because the Air Force values integrity above all else, right? Um, and there was a period where I was not living up to, to you know, expectations of integrity. Uh, there were a couple, there was an incident where I flat out lied about it on, uh, official documentation and, uh, it, you know, it stemmed from just the fact of, I didn't trust the system, right? They said, Hey, just disclose the information. You're not going to get in trouble and then we'll move on. And I just didn't trust the system. So I lied about it. Um, so at that point, my, I had two choices. One was to continue the lie or to come clean. Um, and for a few years, I continued the lie, right? As I had a couple of different opportunities to come forward, to come clean with no retribution. And I still didn't trust the system and continued to lie. Um, and then after several years of true in- introspection and and you know, considering what integrity meant to me, um, going through the, the curriculum, um, of honor at the Air Force Academy, uh, character and leadership development, right? It meant a little bit more to me. Uh, so I wanted to come clean. Uh, another contributing factor was the fact that, you know, I learned about this little thing called the polygraph test, right? You can lie on paper. It's, it's pretty, pretty easy to do. Uh, it's mm-hmm. a lot harder to do it when you're strapped to a polygraph. Uh, so I knew if, if I was going to one, live a life of integrity, and then two, be able to have a successful career, um, I needed to come clean, right? So um, I did, and I knew the consequences of, of coming clean and admitting that I had lied a, a few times and was willing to accept those that risk. Um, I did it anyway, came clean, and we went through the process of a formal um, investigation into you know the wrongdoing and, and my status uh, as a cadet in good standing. And... Um, I'd say 
you know, through good faith of the, the commandant who, whose decision it was, um, they realized that, you know, I, I had truly learned from the curriculum. I was truly, um, you know, sorry that I had done what I did and that, uh, you know, they had good faith that I wasn't going to do it again. So, um, they decided to retain me as a cadet and put me back in good standing and, and had, had an opportunity to start fresh with a clean slate. So, um, well, definitely, definitely I, a lesson by no learned. means, I don't want to, uh, paint you in a, in a, in a bad light in front of the audience by like bringing this up first, yeah. but I really appreciate your vulnerability in sharing this because I mean, I think every single cadet has been in somewhat of a similar situation where we have the option to do something that goes against our morals and right. ethics of this institution. And, um, you know, it's it's good to hear a story of it actually happening, but then it coming clean. So I really appreciate yeah. you sharing that story. Yeah, of course. And I like to share that story with everybody I talk to about, you know, character and integrity. Um, it matters so much, not only on paper, but, you know, your soul is, is better for it. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, when you come out on the other side and you're a leader, a genuine leader, authentic leader, and then, you know, me in my case as a, as a father and a husband, you want to be uh, genuine and, you know, live a life of integrity too. So it's good just to be honest and, and, and have that character, um, with firm footing. Yep. This show is much more than exploring just jobs. I, I really appreciate the, the leadership and moral lesson that you've provided. Um, so I guess moving on, what part of Intel interested you as a cadet and did it ring true as an officer? Yeah. All right. So when I jumped into my my major um, of political science, I was really exposed to the world of intelligence and intelligence professionals because so many of the political science instructors, at least when I was going through, were um, intelligence officers. So um, you know, seeing their experiences and um, you know, the way they carry themselves and the things that they knew and what they were exposed to, I said, wow, I want to do that. I want their experiences. That looks like fun. Um, because at the end of the day, you know, one, one thing that, that stuck out to me was these guys, they, they drink coffee and they know things right? <laughs> like, like, like uh, a play on words from game of Thrones, um, drinking coffee and knowing things sounds like a pretty fun job. Um, you know, I'm, I'm interested in everything. I could never really nail down one area of, of true passion, uh, kind of like a jack of trades, master of none. So mm-hmm. I was like, you know, that, that sounds like fun to me. I want to know all the things I want to, and I want to support, uh, you know, air force operations through that, through that lens and go find the bad guy. Um, and when I say know all the things I'm talking about truly everything from technology, whether it's past, current or future emerging technology, uh, you know, geopolitics, everything about warfare, the nature and the character of warfare, how blue, red, and gray military forces are integrated with governments, human and societal behaviors, history, languages, economics, everything, everything, right? Because it's our job to understand and be able to explain the operational environment to policymakers, commanders, decision makers, uh, and effectively communicate the changes to the operational environment. So it's truly everything. 
you know, so that's one element of the job, but also looking at the other element, which is management and leadership skills too, right? Knowing how to effectively communicate and collaborate and, and manage your projects and manage your resources. Um, that is also on your, on your plate as an intelligence mm-hmm. officer. Um, and like I said, looking at their experiences, realizing that intelligence is truly everywhere. It's integrated in every mission of the Department of the Air Force, uh, every domain that we operate in or support, right? Air, space, cyberspace, ground, maritime surface, subsurface. Uh, I mean, shoot, we even have sensors in the, the crust of the earth, right? So we're everywhere. Every function of the military, from acquisitions to operational planning to targeting to current ISR operations, building partner capacity, uh, you know, and that's just in the Air Force realm. And then we go into joint operations where you can find yourself in, uh, you know, supporting special operations or joint staff or combatant commands or combat support agencies. We're everywhere. High demand, um, high demand across the board. So it just seemed like so much fun to have that world of experience. So that was your experience as a cadet, um, talking to a lot of instructors who are in the uh, yeah. intelligence space. Right. One thing that I hear from cadets a lot, especially people that I hang around with that are looking into intelligence is they'll hear a pretty cool story about some sort of either one-off or really niche experience in intelligence. That's maybe a really rare job that, I don't know, they're basically a spy, like some sort of CIA, or they're working in some really specialized weapons program that only three intelligence officers are involved yeah. with. I don't know. I'm just coming yeah. up with examples out of my ass, but yeah, everybody um, wants to be Jason Bourne. Something <laughs> basically. Really cool, right? And so was this a situation of, Hey, you got what you were looking for from your, your experience of listening to these officers as cadets and you actually got that? Or did you just get put in a spot and you were just happy to be somewhat assimilated with that community? Yeah. Um, so just like in high school, when I, I couldn't make the cut to get into the air force Academy, um, I found myself in a similar position at the air force Academy. Uh, when we were looking for jobs, I wanted to be an intelligence officer, but with the limited billets available for Intel and me being at the middle of the pack, it didn't happen. I was mm. not able to get uh, a role as an intelligence officer. So um, my backup was actually pursuing pilot. Um, so, you know, accepted the position, went off to pilot training and uh <laughs> You know, never truly fell in love with it. Um, you know, it was okay. Uh, could I see a, a, a career with it? Yeah, sure. Was I thrilled about it? No. Was it my passion? No. Um, I'd say I was I was blessed with a a pretty nerve wracking experience um, in student student pilot training uh, on a solo. This is early on, so I was still still fresh, but on a solo. Had an in-flight emergency, hit a flock of geese. Um, long story behind that, but um, you know, conducted the emergency landing procedure just fine. Everything worked out well. Um, and then subsequent fl- flights after that, when you're tested to do the emergency landing procedure, I just couldn't stick it. I just got shook mm-hmm. up every time. Um, you know, something mentally just uh, wasn't clicking after that. So I had the opportunity to say, "Hey, you know what, Commander, I don't want to do this." It's not right for me. 
Uh, and they said, listen, you can, you, you can do that and you can tell the Air Force what you want to do, but you're going to be up to the needs of the Air Force. And I said, yep, acknowledge the risk. Thank you. Uh, this isn't right for me. So I told the Air Force I want to be an intelligence officer. And they said, okay, we have a position open for you. Why don't you come to uh, intelligence officer school? And, and that began my journey as an intelligence officer. So in a roundabout way, just like getting into the Air Force Academy, I found myself uh, as an intelligence officer, which is what I you know, wanted to do from the get-go and was truly passionate about. So it seems to be a reoccurring story for me, doing things yeah, the hard I way. Guess but it goes to show that you, know, you can get what you want um, despite what the circumstances initially you know, are. Not everyone. Firsties are getting their jobs this Friday. And uh, General Clark last week announced that pilot slots are down 20%. Mm -hmm. So I'm assuming there's going to be a lot of people that are upset. But I guess my interpretation of that is they just want to cut down lieutenants on casual so that the pipeline doesn't become like an even bigger funnel, like clogged. But then as soon as pilot training starts opening up again, I'm sure that they'll start taking pilots maybe a little bit later in their career, like as a second or third year lieutenant potentially. So I guess that's along similar lines of it might not come initially, but if you keep your fingers crossed and work hard, I know, I know a lot of folks who didn't get what they wanted right out of the Academy and they were, they were blown away with what the opportunity offered them. Right. Um, whether you've, you think you want to be a pilot and then you end up in maintenance or logistics or acquisitions or, or whatever. And you end up realizing you love it. Um, because you know, (laughs) we understand as cadets, we, we understand only so much, Mm. right? We hear about things, we, we read about things, but you're truly not going to know what it's like until you, until you live that experience. So a lot of folks end up loving what they end up doing. Hmm. Back, back to intelligence, um, obviously without getting into anything classified, I don't want to press you at all. Can, can you walk us through the different forms of intelligence collection that you've done specifically and how they were carried out? Okay. Yeah. Um, all right. So when we talk about intelligence, um, we have to break it up into a few different parts. Um, you know, intelligence could be a community, right? The intelligence community. Intelligence can be a product what you deliver to somebody. Um, intelligence can be an operation, right? The actual collection. Um, so I'll talk a little bit of a smattering of, of all of that. Um, I think your question was geared more towards, you know, intelligence operations. Um, okay. So I think, you know, the majority of my experience, and hold on, let me, let me back up here. So when we talk about the intelligence operations, we talk about it in a cycle. Okay, it's never truly ending. It's always, always repeating itself and going through the wash, uh, starting with planning uh, to collections, uh, to to processing, um, to analysis, production, to dissemination, and then finally evaluation, which goes back right to planning. Okay, um, so the majority of my experiences was bookended on either end of actual collection, right? So the, I spent a lot of time doing planning of ISR operations. And then the back end of that, which was uh, production analysis and production and dissemination and evaluation. Um, you know, I actually, there's, there's very few of us who get to experience 
um, conducting actual ISR operations, right? Being on a flight uh, with cans on, collecting the data, processing the data on board in real time, uh, running around with a backpack on with an antenna on it, collecting things. Um, That's that Jason you know, Bourne stuff he, you're talking he, about. Doing hum, human intelligence in the field, actually like gathering that information. Very few mm. of us actually get to do that. The majority of us are doing the book-ended work. Um, and that's where I spent the majority of my time, um, which was great. It was a lot. It was great exposure. You still get to see and and you know understand the entire cycle because you're part of it. Um, you get to plug into it and you get to work with everybody. Um, well, like I said, yeah, the majority of my time was planning and analysis and production on the back end. What does analysis and production of that mean? Does that mean after it's collected? you take it in, apply it to the context of the situation and try to make a product that warfighters can use? Is that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Good question. So after it's collected, it goes through the wash, right? And it's a, a digital collection. It has to get processed, right? Make sure all the ones and zeros are, are coming out the other end in the right order. It looks good. Uh, the technology is working, all of that stuff, right? Um, making sure that it's in a readable format for production uh, and analysts to utilize effectively. All right, so folks in A and P shops and analysis and production shops, they take that data and they say they do exactly what you just said. They apply it to the context of whatever the question was initially. What was the requirement that came that started the the collection? Right. Let's answer that question. We're, first of all, are we able to answer that question based on the information that we got? And two, does it what what can it tell us about the battle space? Right, and how can it inform our assessments about what the adversary might be doing or did? Mm. And then we go ahead and we deliver that to our customers, which can be policymakers, commanders, decision makers, you know, those flyers, those trigger pullers, whoever they might be. Okay. So now that we have the, the groundwork of collecting intelligence, what you do with it, do you think uh, when we spoke previously, you gave an actual example, something to do with ISIS and drones. Do you think you could mm -hmm. apply that to that story that you told? Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. So I was, I was given an awesome opportunity when I, when I came out the gates from an intelligence school, I was thrown into a unit that was, had their hands deep in the, the counter ISIS fight. Um, and we were responsible for doing, um, nodal analysis or network analysis. So understanding how our adversary, how ISIS was constructed, right? What all those entities that ISIS had, whether they were people or places or, or activities, how were they all connected in, in a big map that you see on a board, right? With all the red lines in between everything. Um, our teams are doing that analysis and then producing targeting material or other forms of production um, that operators could then go employ effects against, right? So, um, mm. We were looking at a very niche target system, a very small, a very new type of, of weapon system that ISIS was employing. They were using the small unmanned aerial systems that you can buy off the shelf in Walmart or Amazon, right? And they were they were using those for their own intelligence to see where um, where our partners were in the battle space, and they were actually dropping munitions from those unmanned aerial systems as well. 
So uh, we were charged with understanding their network, you know, who was doing what, how were they getting their resources, who was calling the shots, where were they, and then uh, building the targeting material that operators needed to go prosecute those bad guys, right? Um, so there was one instance where we were tied very closely with an ISR platform that figured out where the bad guy was, okay? Um, and we, we were able to, to track the bad guy as they were moving along. Yeah. So we were following this guy. Okay. And like I said, we assessed it to be the bad guy. Okay. So we were following him with a unnamed ISR platform and we were about to lose custody of that platform. So then we were going to lose him. We, you know, we weren't going to be able to follow him anymore. And I was leaning over to my, I was on the phone with our, with our strike team, with our fire cell, who was going to go ahead and employ effects against that bad guy. If, if we, uh, you know, recommended, provided that recommendation, provided that assessment saying, yes, confirmed it's bad guy. But I was talking with my, my NCO to my right, who had been sitting there for months trying to understand the signature of, of the adversary, right? He knew exactly what the bad guy looked like and how they operated. Um, and he said, you know, boss, I just don't have a good feeling about this. I, it doesn't satisfy all of the signatures that we typically see, right? So I just don't feel 100% on this. So, you know, I have fires team in my ear asking me what's going on. Uh, what are we, what do we, you know, what do you think we should do? And we said, hold, hold, hold. And, you know, on the other line is the pressure from the ISR coordinator saying, hey, we're going to lose custody of this here in a second. And just as we were about to lose custody, we found the, the bad guy go into the camp of, uh, go into their home camp and it ended up not being ISIS. We'll just say that. Okay. So if we had provided a faulty recommendation or a faulty assessment, it could have been opened up a whole can of worms, right? And mm. uh, gotten us into a lot of trouble had we not trusted the gut feeling, trusted the the assessment of of our NCO who was, you know, in near real time providing that that critical assessment. Um, so, you know, that's one of my favorite war stories is the time where we actually didn't end up blowing up anybody, <laughs> right? When we, we actually didn't do something, it actually ended up saving the day. That's so interesting. It, it shows um, how murky the waters really were in GWAT because you don't really know who you're fighting and nobody wants to commit a war crime or anything where you're going to have some sort of CNN factor. So I think that's a really interesting story. Like you said, you didn't end up like employing effects. When we looked at nation state warfare, it's a lot simpler in nature because there's uniforms and there's symbols and there's flags. It's not so easy in counterinsurgency, counterterrorism operations. Um, mm -hmm. And even and even now we have we have actual gray space, what we call gray space in, in state on state competition, right? Um, where it's hard to attribute certain actions to a specific adversary. Um, so the challenges still exist even outside of. On the topic of, um, I guess, being deployed as an intelligence officer, I'm assuming, this is with my limited knowledge of intelligence, intelligence officers can deploy and be on the ground with their operators in collecting intelligence, but they could also be stateside collecting intelligence and uh, giving it to that same group of warfighters who are downrange. 
how exactly does that work from being uh, like, what are the differences between being there with them and being halfway across, across the globe? Yeah. So a lot of it depends on what your mission is and who you're assigned to is going to necessitate whether you need to be in theater or you can be virtual remote. But I'd say the majority of air force intelligence enterprise is, um, is supporting the warfighter through, uh, reach back distributed operations, right? Uh, we are not sitting side by side with the folks downrange or wherever they might be. Mm. Um, and that is, that is one of the biggest advantages that, that we have, um, you know, the U S and Western advanced Western militaries is our ability to have that, um, global integrated ISR capability, right? The technology and the resources that we have in order to communicate and conduct operations with, with folks across the world in almost near real time is it's, it's incredible, right? Our, our ability to rely on the fiber backbone, but also the satellite um, networks is incredible. And it's a, a great resource that we have a great advantage that we have. Uh, you know, our adversaries don't enjoy that type of global interconnect- interconnectedness, at least not, not yet. And we hope they, we hope they never do. Hey, real quick, hope you're enjoying the episode. If you are, could you do me a favor and follow and leave a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and also follow the show on Instagram at 4.the.zoomies to see clips of upcoming episodes and stay engaged with the community. Thanks for your ongoing support. So we have this this capability that not a lot of other people have, but does that communication, because I mean, I think we all run into problems where miscommunications happen because it's not happening face-to-face, rather over a screen. Right. Are there still communication issues that exist that could be detrimental in... Right. Yeah, certainly. So, so we, you know, we, we see this not only in, you know, military intelligence, uh, situations, but really the world that we live in now ubiquitously across industry and, and everywhere is, is the virtual and, and the remote, uh, status quo. Um, you know, I, in my civilian capacity, which we haven't addressed yet, right. I'm a, I'm a reserve officer. So in my civilian capacity, I work completely remotely with a team out of Ohio. Right. And a lot of my job depends on the, the nuances and, and the nonverbal communications and building that team from that perspective, that intangible perspective. Uh, and it's mm-hmm. so hard to do it remotely. It's so hard to develop a team remotely and virtually. Um, so that is definitely one of the biggest challenges that, uh, especially intelligence professionals have is developing those relationships, uh, having very, very tight, clear communication, um, especially if it's distributed operations where there's 24 hour coverage and you're handing it off from one side of the world to another. You know, there has to be, you know, very, very good, solid communication uh, between those organizations in order to, to ensure that we have that 24 hour coverage and we have solid communication. So, Virtual teaming is a huge challenge that takes a lot of commitment, a lot of resources. Um, you know, it takes it takes getting up and getting out, taking a flight and going to meet the your counterparts across the globe. Um, you know, as often as necessary to establish those relationships so that you guys 
can have that human relationship, like, you know, benefiting from that human element of uh, truly understanding the person that you're working with over the phone or via email, right? It just makes for a better relationship and more effective uh, cohesion to accomplish the mission mm-hmm. together. Yeah, I often talk about a high a high trust environment in the military, especially when it comes down to collecting intelligence in warfighters where there's a, a pretty quick OODA loop going on there. That, like I said, a high trust environment, you have to be able to really trust your counterparts that are either supplying information or you're getting information from. Um, and it sounds like there are mitig- uh ways that this miscommunication is mitigated, which I'm glad that the the US is investing in because we can't we can't really afford to make mistakes based off of something that I wouldn't call menial because it is a big problem, but can be so easily uh, overlooked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think sometimes we have to find that that fair balance between virtual resources those solutions and the need for face-to-face human interaction, right? There's, mm. there's, there's a good balance between the two and it's just a constant back and forth as far as what, what is the right combination of the two to satisfy the, the current mission in the current environment. And I think that, that, that pendulum is always swinging, but yeah, uh, yeah, I would say that it is one of the best ways to mitigate the breaks in virtual teaming is to get out and meet those people face-to-face and have, have an opportunity to build those relationships and then go back, you know, and continue that virtual teaming. But it's, it's at a more intimate, tighter, uh, relationship from, from then on. We'll move on to your experience in the reserves. Um, so do you think you could start us off with what guided you to enter the reserves? Yeah. So that was almost entirely based on strategic, personal family life choices. Uh, we thought it was a good opportunity to start a new career where we were in life um, based on you know our age. Uh, you know, you're not getting younger by the day, but older. So you're missing out on good opportunities potentially to start something new, uh, you know, where you are in life. Um, you know, but our kids were getting older and grandparents were getting older too. So we thought it was time, a good time to settle down. So mm-hmm. that was, that was the, the decision to punch from active duty and get into the reserve. And, um, I, you know, another, I guess another reason was we, I was trying to find work doing cyber threat intelligence in the air force. And also we wanted to get to Europe and neither of those things really ended up happening. Um, so, you know, you couple it, couple in the other strategic factors and it was just another reason to, to punch and forge mm-hmm. our own way through through life. Uh, luckily, I found an opportunity to work cyber intelligence in Germany. Uh, so that's my current assignment. So not only did I end up doing what I wanted to do functionally, but also where I wanted to. Um, and I'm doing that as a reservist. Well, it looks it sounds like everything worked out for you. Again, uh, another piece of luck, right? <laughs> a quick tangent. I'm assuming intelligence is has a lot of skills that carry over to jobs that in the civilian sector, people are looking to employ you pretty rapidly. Is that correct? I think, I think uh, one of the main reasons why 
cybersecurity and cyber intelligence was so appealing to me was um, a piece of mentor, a piece of mentoring that I got a few years before I decided to transition was, hey, if you're gonna if you're gonna make the the pivot, find something that's hyper growth and uh, quasi recession proof, right? <laughs> so you look across the board and information technology, cybersecurity, those things rank rank up there as far as job security. Um, mm. But it's also it's just it's just a lot of fun. We have a lot of a lot of skills in the military across the board, no matter what AFSC you're in or what rank you are. You have skills that are naturally translatable to cybersecurity, and mm. there's a million and you know a million and one different resources out there that explain those things and how to translate those things that I won't get into right now. But it's a it's a great place for for veterans to be. Mm. And um, an interesting thing that we discussed prior to the episode was how reservists are kind of like civilians, how they provide continuity in the military, but specifically reservists, they contribute this factor of, okay, what's going on in the uh, like private sector where a business cannot function without getting profits. So they employ pretty, I don't know, they, companies that survive employ useful tactics mm-hmm. and yeah. reservists give the opportunity to bring those tactics into the military where, you know, we're funded by a, a, a government budget where it's, it's less of a, uh, like a tactic cycle. Mm-hmm. So do you think you could bring us into what you do as a scrum master and what you bring to the military through your reservist capacity? Okay. Yeah. I think, uh, reservists across the board, you know, they, they, um, they supplement the, the total force, right. They, they provide that increase in volume when needed, when called upon, uh, during a campaign. Um, and those typically the traditional reserve units that can provide that increase in volume, um, to whatever campaign that you're, you're, you're currently in. Um, but then you have individual reservists like myself um we're called imas which supplement active duty units right Mm -hmm. specific positions at active duty units we supplement them um to provide you know a second set of eyes or to provide some relief for our active duty counterpart um so that they can go and do professional training or they can get deployed or they can take some well well well-deserved um time off right um so we can come in and, and provide that supplementary impact to the okay. unit. Now, like you said, yeah, we, we come in with this, this otherworldly experience that, you know, if, if you're in active duty for so long, you may not have experience outside of that. Like I never did my, my entire adult life. I was in active duty military. So that's the, that's the world that I knew. Those are my parameters. Right. Um, so the norms in the societal and the technology, technological norms, I was only so aware of outside of my left and right boundaries within the military. Um, and then I left and was exposed to a, a completely different world, right? With, of workplace norms and culture and technology, um, you know, that I'm able to bring to my active duty units when I, when I'm on orders. Right. And one of those things that I try to bring, well, two things really is, um, you know, I try and specialize in cyber threat intelligence in the reserves, right? So I try and bring that 
that uh, that different um, the lessons learned from corporate America or the corporate world and the open the open source material that we have available to us out there and bring that to the active duty unit from a different set of eyes, different perspective, right? Uh, but also work, workplace management, project management techniques. Um, you know, the Air Force, the military is trying to be uh, much more forward with their their program and project management um, to be much more agile in nature where it makes mm. sense. Um, and this is uh, a place where, you know, me as a scrum master in my civilian capacity can bring some value to those active duty units, right? Um, Agile project management is all about continuous process improvement, right? And working for the federal government, you're never going to have all of the resources that you want or usually need to accomplish the mission. You could always mm. use more with less or do more with less, I should say. And, uh, you know, agile project management uh, reduces the risk of, of wasted resources um, to, to rapidly uh, deliver valuable solutions to customers and, and make them, you know, satisfy them on a more routine basis than old traditional project management techniques uh, would allow. Uh, so bringing those, bringing those mechanisms and, and that perspective to an active duty unit, which may not be exposed to that continuous process improvement uh, philosophy uh, is a value added too. Now, you know, that's, that's not to say that there's no formal mechanism in the air force for continuous process improvement. In fact, they just revamped it and now it's called CI squared. Uh, continuous mm. improvement and in, in innovation, and it's it's growing a lot. It's becoming much more well known and implemented across units. So um, there is growth there. So you know, taking taking that the the notions from that program and combining that with my experience as a scrum master, uh, working working in agile projects and agile environments, um, you know, we hope that there's there's some value added to to the active duty units that we support. Do you think that you could jump into what agile is a little bit more? Because the last time we talked, it sounds as though it's applicable to every leadership position, which is every, almost every uh, career field as an officer. So do you think you could jump into that a little bit more? Okay. Yeah. It's so it, it could be applicable. Um, it depends on what makes sense for your mission or your, you know, your product that you're trying to, to deliver. Um, we have different ways that we manage projects. Okay. Um, traditionally there was what we call the waterfall project management solution, which is, um, you know, identifying the requirements, coming up with a, a way forward, executing the project. So creating whatever you need to create and then delivering it to, to the stakeholder at the back end, And that might take, weeks, months, years to deliver, right? And then at the end, when you finally del deliver it to them, they say, well, actually this is um, obsolete. It's actually not what we needed in the first place. So therefore, either go back to the drawing board or we're gonna go find somebody else to solve the problem for us, right? And at that point, you've, you've burned through so many resources, mm. money, people, time, and you don't have the right solution. So in some areas, it works well, okay? In some areas, though, especially in software development, um, there there needed to be a way to incorporate feedback much faster uh, and provide incremental solutions along the way instead of waiting till the end to provide a whole a whole solution, right? Um, so that's where Agile kind of came in and said, okay, we're going to break this up into bite-sized chunks, 
and okay, stakeholder, here is part of your solution. It's a little bit of value. Give me feedback. I'm going to incorporate that feedback into the next iteration, and we're going to keep building on that indefinitely until you are totally satisfied and you know we can all walk, walk away happy. Okay. Um, so it, it's really a risk reduction mechanism to ensure that we're satisfying the customer and reducing waste along the way. Okay. Yeah. In my conversations with acquisitions officers, they often speak about how their engineers are always trying to get a hundred percent effective um, products, but they end up being either way over budget or way over time. And I think what you're hinting at here is that agile is coming up with a 75%, 80% solution that still gets it done effectively enough, but it's first and foremost, like under time. So you're, you're way ahead of schedule so that, like you said, you can get these iterations pumped out and we're not waiting twice as long to get a product that the engineers deem as 100% effective, but even the warfighters yeah. may, may think it's not completely. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't say it's, you know, under time, under budget, um, or under scope or anything like that. When you look at the, the tripod of project management, those three factors, but, um, cause you're going to give yourself a period of time to, to accomplish the work. Usually it's in two week increments. Um, okay. so you, you tell your stakeholder, look in these next two weeks, I can deliver you X, Y, Z. All right. So then you deliver that piece of value and then they provide you with a review and like, Hey, you know, this worked, this, do this doesn't work. I wanted purple instead of blue, go back and, <laughs> and redo it. But it's not a year later, it's two weeks later, right? So you're reducing the risk of further waste down the road. Okay. Gotcha. So it, it's really at, like uh, at the end of the project, at the very end of it, you delivered value along the way and minimize risk instead of waiting the entire time and then having to go back and start, start fresh. Okay. It's all about continuous process improvement, right? And like I mm. said, the Air Force has that theory in place. Like every commander is responsible for identifying opportunities for process improvement, right? So for something that you know our cadets who are listening can take away is like, hey, how do I provide value to my unit as a second lieutenant? Like this might be an area that you can consider, right? I mean, you may not be the, the technical expert in whatever you're supposed to do. So mm. maybe you can find a way to improve the system as you're learning the process ask why do we do that does that make sense is there a way that we can you know uh minimize the risk of wasted resources along the way and then provide those recommendations to your commander and say hey i think we found a way to to save some time save some money save save some other resources um mm. for the unit right yeah and i you know that's not going away anytime soon um that's a need that is echoed from the top down uh, across mm -hmm. the federal government, right? And and in the corporate world too. Everybody's looking to save resources, especially yeah. in this time of upcoming possible austerity, right? Yep. So it's always a good thing to figure out a way to do things better. By way of rounding out this episode, do you think you could um, give some advice for cadets considering a similar path as you? Okay, yeah. Um, you know, I don't think I'm going to say anything new that you know, <laughs> you know our parents... Uh, haven't said already or instructors haven't said already or other uh, alumni haven't said, but you know, from my perspective as a, as an intelligence officer and where I am in my career, I'd say learn as much as you can about everything. 
right? Like have that thirst for knowledge because as we know, knowledge is power. And, you know, you walk outside Mitchell Hall, it says man's flight through life is sustained by the power of his knowledge, right? We all know that. Um, and that's true, right? The more experience mm-hmm. that you have, the more you realize that that's true, uh, especially as an intelligence officer um, to, you know, to give the commander the, what they need to, to be effective in the battle space. Um, two would be to build and, and nurture a network, a powerful network. Um, never burn bridges because you never know when you're going to need somebody else. Um, and if, and if you can't be friends with somebody, don't burn the bridge, right? Just, just leave it. Um, <laughs> but build and maintain that network because you're going to see some folks on the outside and you're going to need those people. You're going to need to rely on each other. Um, I can't tell you the amount of times where you just walk, you're walking in the hallway and you see somebody from school and you're like, Oh, I know you, uh, where are you working? Oh, I need this. I need X, Y, Z from your team. Or maybe you can help me out with this project. Um, especially as an intelligence officer, so much of it is about collaboration and cross team relationships. And that actually brings me to my next point, which is relationships and collaboration. Like that is, that is so, so critical to being, uh, to, to, to being a successful officer in general. Um, but especially within the intelligence world. Um, one of my old bosses used to say the one, your best day, your best day, you can tell if you had a great day if your feet and your throat are absolutely sore at the end of the day. So that means you were walking around and you were talking to everybody, right? So if your feet and your throat are killing you at the end of the day, it was probably a good day. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then, look, career success for anybody, for anybody, is value delivery, right? If you if you figure out what your boss is, your boss needs, and you deliver value often, then you're going to succeed. I mean, that's a very vague thing to say, okay? But when you look at how we are evaluated as officers, first and foremost, the, the highest weighted factor is what value did, did you deliver? Um, so, you know, you could do a lot of volunteer hours and you could do a lot of things for your community and you can do all of these other things. That's great. But at the end of the day, they're looking for you to, um, you know, support operations and deliver value. Just mm. keep that in mind. Yeah. Would you be open to cadets reaching out to you if they have any questions about intelligence or any uh, of your experience in, um, of course, the operational Air Force? Yeah, absolutely. Great. I'm I'm glad you brought that up. So I can be reached on on LinkedIn. That's a great resource for me if if anybody's on there. Um, you know, for, for, forward slash Pete Smith five nine is where you can find me. You can probably drop it in the show notes. But I'm yep. also on the uh, USAFA mentorship program too. So if anybody's looking for a mentor out in the wild, uh, you can find me there too. Awesome. Well, sir, thanks again for what you uh, giving your time to the show and also for everything you do to, for our country. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. It's been a great ride. And thanks for, uh, thanks for inviting me on the show. This is great what you do. We appreciate you. Of course. Oh,